Well, let's pray together one more time. Father, we are grateful. We are deeply grateful, Lord, that we belong to you. We're grateful, Lord, that we are at home in you. And yet we're aware, Lord, that because, not because of so many things, because of our rebellion and others, we often feel away, apart, outcast. We often feel lonely and displaced. And Lord, I pray that not only right now out of this psalm, but this month out of a number of different psalms, you would remind us of how you restore us back to the place where we feel like we belong with you. We feel like we're home with you. And so Father, I ask now that you would encourage and strengthen us. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes and that the things that we have believed that are contrary to your word would be easily and easily repented of. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, by way of audio, am I creating a little bit of feedback here as well? All right. Well, can I keep going like this? We, this is distracting to you guys? You all right? All right, let's go. All right. Well, one of the, the great things about being away on a cruise is that you sleep in a bed that looks out over the ocean, which is kind of nice. You eat food that other people have prepared for you, which is kind of nice. That whenever you arrive at a destination, there's a sandy beach to get out and get on, which is kind of nice. There's a lot of things like that that are just kind of nice. But here's something that's interesting. After a week of doing that, I was really eager to be done. In a similar way, one of the things that's really nice about Zach and Leila living right down the road from us is that they often come over and they often get to hang out with us. It's really enjoyable. Zoe recently has moved out and she'll often come back and stay with us sometimes over the weekend because of her rhythm of being here on Sundays. And just it's nice to have her home. But it was interesting. I was talking with Zach and Leila a little bit as Zoe had left. And they asked, is it, is it hard to have Zoe leave? And I said something that initially might have been interpreted a little bit like, no, we're so sick of Zoe, get her out of here, which is not at all what I meant to imply. But what I said is, no, it's, it's good to see that she's home somewhere else. Because as nice as it is to have Zach and Leila, they really don't like staying the night over at our house. Leila in particular has often just said, it's, I just sort of need my bed again. So we, we'd been away and she was getting back home. We were a little worried about some frozen pipes because, well, pipes froze here and at the Lander house, pipes froze as well. The day after Christmas, we were pulling carpeting out of our oak room because a pipe had burst. And well, you know, we were batting two for two on that. And so as Zoe was going back home, we were a little worried what was going to happen. But she got there and the good news is the radiators hadn't burst. You know, cast iron pipe seems to work a little bit better than copper at not freezing and thawing and all those kinds of things. And yet when Zoe arrived back home, she said kind of the same thing. You know, I like this place. It's good to be home. God does that a lot for us, doesn't he? He's intentionally set up life 
so that there are these longings that we have that are incompletely fulfilled in the structures that he's created for us, particularly around family. Paul was very clear. Marriage, though great, is nothing but a picture. Parents, mothers, and fathers, we, we function in a way for our kids, but largely so that they wish that they were adopted in one sense. Not because they don't like us, but because everything, even the most satisfying and excellent parent, does nothing or is called to do nothing but make our kids long for our Heavenly Father, longing that they would be adopted into His family. Everything that's set up in this world can be partially fulfilling, but all it really does in some ways is create a greater longing for something else. How many times have you heard the song, I'll be home for Christmas? At least over this last month, a lot more than I had the rest of 2022. And the reason that so many people have sadly taken a holiday that is largely about Jesus, about the advent of and the incarnation of the Son of God onto the earth and have made it something about families or times of miracles or other generic stuff is because they're still tapped into something. What Jesus did in coming to the world ultimately gives us a picture of the home that he's bringing us back to. The home he left in order to come and take up residence here was in a way him coming and rescuing us and letting us know there is a greater home for you than anything you could ever experience. It's that longing we want to tap into this January. And so we're picking Psalms and I, along with Sue, really have loved Psalm 84 over the years. But it wasn't until recently that I was reading this that uh, just probably a month or two ago where it was one of those experiences where I read it and it was like I read it freshly almost for the first time. And I just heard the words again and thought that is resonating with something deep inside me. I think it probably is going to resonate deep within the church as well. And so we want to think more carefully this month about what it means to be home in the Lord. We use a lot of different words, a lot of different metaphors, but what we're really trying to tap into is that idea of belonging. In one sense, a church ought to feel a little bit like it will make a great big banner that just says, welcome home as you make your way in. Because there's a certain sense that as we gather together, it ought to be a reminder that family reunions ought to be a reminder that going back to Colorado ought to be a reminder. But it's a reminder not that we're going to be satisfied in this world, but that we're ultimately satisfied by something that God provides. So that said, I think there's three blessings and there's just three times in this psalm where this blessing that God is providing for us is, uh, is specifically kind of declared to us. And so the first blessing that I want us to focus on is the blessing of home, what we'll call the yearning to dwell with God. Listen to the way the psalmist talks about it, starting in verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. I'm going to probably a couple times call him David. This wasn't written by David. This is attributed to the sons of Korah. So it's just hard to say. So I'll probably just 
call the sons of Korah the psalmist in this case or something along these lines. But in verse one, what, what the psalmist is calling us to remember is that God's dwelling place is beautiful. Now, at the point it's written, we're, we're leaning towards the, the central location of God's actual dwelling place, which was a beautiful structure. The temple was glorious. And God's people, whether they had originally been coming to the tabernacle or later coming to the temple or later then to a recreated temple after that first one was destroyed or even hearing the, 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 the prophets, Ezekiel in particular, describing what a, a future temple might be like, there's always beauty associated with it. But the beauty isn't just gold, which is like beautiful gold. It's always gold fashioned into something that reminded the people of God of the home that they left in the very beginning. All the reminders, all the carvings, all the weavings that were there in the tabernacle and there in the temple all pointed back to Genesis 2. There were reminders that God's people used to be home. And we read this in Genesis 2. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And in that location was everything that they needed. Trees and water and everything that's pleasant. And then right before the story of how they lost that home, we heard God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. In reality, we can't really do much with other than think of it like a metaphor. But Genesis 3 is no metaphor. Genesis 2 is no metaphor. The reality is that our people at one point dwelled with God in the home he had built for us. And something about that just ought to make us sad. Because the best home you've ever lived in was nothing compared to that. The best family you've ever been connected to was nothing compared to that. And every time the priests worked in the temple, every time the people came to make a sacrifice, there were reminders of the desire they had and the home that they lost. And the psalmist says, that's lovely. That's just absolutely lovely. Not because the precious metals are so precious, but because the pictures just sing and resonate with our hearts. The idea of dwelling with God and everything being okay in that occasion is foreign to humanity. That's why every time after Genesis 3 that somebody actually recognizes their meeting with God, they are overwhelmed. Shoes are off. Faces are planted in the dirt. People are overwhelmed simply because the dwelling place of God is something we recognize we're not fit for anymore. We don't feel like we belong And yet, the psalmist can say in verse 2, this is so lovely that my soul is, is experiencing two realities at the same time. I'm longing for it and fainting from it. I'm longing for something. I'm panting for it. I'm 
thirsting for it. I'm craving it. And yet the experience that I'm having, even in a minimal portion, is causing this faintingness over me. I'm singing for joy, and I'm overwhelmed by the loveliness of the concept that I get to be with God. And then, probably making this sort of pilgrimage up to God's, the, the mountain of God's dwelling, he sees something. A little bird. In one of the nests, in one of the little, you know, alcoves of the temple, he looks and sees a sparrow who finds a home and a swallow who made a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. And Jesus says, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about food. Don't worry about clothing. He uses an argument from the less to the greater. He talks about something insignificant. Why are you so worried about what you're going to look like? The grass gets burned all the time, and yet he makes it beautiful with flowers. If he does that, why should you worry about what you're going to wear? Because he's worried about what the grass wears, and the grass isn't all that valuable. So it seems like you probably shouldn't worry because you're valuable, far more valuable, right? An argument from something insignificant to something like you, much more significant. But the second illustration that he, Jesus uses is of a bird. The cheapest of the sacrifices at the temple, something that in Jesus' personal you know, history, his, his being redeemed, the only thing that his parents could afford was a couple birds. The cheapest offering, the least significant of the animals, Jesus said the birds get hungry and yet God provides for them really, really well. Why would you be worried about providing for yourself then if God's going to take care of grass? Or in the animal kingdom, let's just find the equivalent of grass, birds. And yet here the psalmist is saying, that bird has such an advantage over me. Because I come to visit and I have to leave. And she stays. That insignificant, valueless bird gets to remain in God's dwelling place. And the only word he can use for that kind of experience is a blessing. He says that in verse 4. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. What are the birds doing? How did he notice them? Well, he probably heard them. They're up there squawking away, singing away, chirping away, making some noise in God's presence because with God, they're home and everything's all right. The little ones are peeping away, asking for food because in God, they're settled and blessed and home. And the psalmist says, that's exactly what that should do for us. We've so longed for a home. And in God, we find one which is why Brad read from Revelation 21, because in between this longing, the original loss, we are going to have so many different experiences like the psalmist or like everyone else who was singing the psalmist song in the beginning. They go back to their home and they miss the sense of being with God. 
They're not in Eden. They're dealing with thorns and thistles and curse and sweat and difficulty and trouble. Their work is cursed. Their relationships are cursed. And it feels like the presence of sin overweighs the presence of God. And one day we remember that John said, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He'll dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And then what's verse four actually remind us? That when that's accomplished in full, everything the curse brought about will also be wiped away. Because in Eden, there was no tears. There was no mourning or crying or pain. But all that was lost. And sometimes it feels like it was lost forever. Think over your stories from 2022. There was pain. There was loss. Some of it personal that you probably haven't told. And some of it just, they've marked our story as a church this last year. We've shared some of those sorrows together. And in the middle of those sorrows, in the moment of that sweat and those thorns and those curses, it's easy to feel like what God intended for us is something we broke that can never be restored. But the message of the Bible and the hope of this psalm is that we can dwell with God in part now because we know that it someday we'll never lose it. What's been wiped away from the story of humanity and what will ultimately be wiped away isn't our ability to be with God. It might feel like that sometimes. But what will ultimately be wiped away is every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for all of those former things have passed away. And when I read that the first time, it was these four verses ones that Sue read for us that reminded me of how much I forget on a day-by-day basis. I forget that this longing I have is not really supposed to be fulfilled by anyone else. It's not meant for friendship to fulfill. It's not meant for marriage or family to fulfill. It's not meant for work or entertainment to fulfill. The longing we have wasn't meant for you to be able to connect into some other story that you could find online or find in a TV series. The reason those things are so compelling is because they're nothing but echoes. They're nothing but shadows of the greater reality, which is that we yearn to dwell with God. And if you look back over this last year, don't you feel that a little bit? I know I do. That's not the only blessing, though, that this psalm really lays out. First blessing he, he reminds us of is that we want to be home with God. We want to dwell with God. The second blessing, though, comes right there in verse 5. This joy that we have of walking with God. And the language, the picture that the psalmist uses is that of highways. He says it right out of the gate there in verse 4. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. In whose heart are the highways to Zion? 
As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Now, as you know, when you read something in the Bible that you haven't really been familiar with, you don't hear about a lot, or it's a word we don't use, it's a really good idea to go look in the Bible for other places that that word is used, so that not just the context of what you're reading, but the larger context of how that word is used in Scripture, you know, kind of informs the way that you read something. So when I read the Valley of Baca in verse 6, it's helpful to go to the other places in the Bible where that verse and that phrase are used, right? And here it is. This is it. This is the one time that we hear about the Valley of Baca. So the trouble is that nobody really agrees on what exactly is being talked about, but everybody agrees it's bad. That's the point. And to try and understand what's bad can really be defined by the solutions that the psalmist says are are to come to that. You see the logic of that, right? If I were to come and say, hey, something's broken at your house, and I said, well, what kind of tool do you think I would need to come and fix it? And you said, well, bring a screwdriver, then I would expect that when I came over, you didn't have a problem with a nail, right? Because the problem that you have fits the solution that you recommend. If I said, you need some help uh, with plumbing, we would say, call John Jones, right? Because John Jones has the tools necessary. He would be surprised if he invited him over and you said, well, I've got this electrical problem over here. John would say, well, that'll be $85 for a house call. I don't think he would, actually. He was very generous with us, which is why I'm saying John Jones, John Jones, John Jones all the time so that you can remember, that's a good guy right there. You might want to call him for your plumbing problems. That said, we don't exactly know what the problem here is at the Valley of Baca, but listen to the solutions. Listen to the way that he's describing what can happen to this valley. They make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. In other words, going through a valley often in the Bible is a problem, right? Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We think about retreats as mountaintop experiences. What are the opposite of those? The valleys. Now, the odd thing is, In the geography of Palestine, the valleys are where all the water usually collects. But only at the right time of the year. The amazing thing is these valleys that can be lush and green when the rains are gone are dry and desolate. Those valleys at that point don't become places of oasis and refreshment. They become something that can be very difficult to get through. In fact, if you're going to make your way through an area that is often kind of, you know, up and down like that, the best path is usually to stay on the ridge. If you were to have to hike across an area and you'd have to go down a valley and up a mountain and down a valley, the valleys were not blessings for you, especially at the wrong time of the year. That seems to be the experience here. This valley of Baca is getting in the way of the fact that we want to get to God. That's why he's talking about the highway to Zion. Zion's the mountain where God dwells. It's the reference back to what he was just talking about. But what 
he's saying in verse 5 isn't the blessing of verse 4. It's good to be settled and to be at home with God. What's he saying here, though? But even on the path, even on the way of trying to get to God, when you can't stay up on the mountain ridge, when you can't stay up on the road that's most traveled, and you actually have to get down into the valley, and not at the time when it's refreshing and green and watered, but when it is clearly dry and you are parched, and it is causing more trouble to be in the valley than you're getting any refreshment out of the valley. Even then, there's a blessing. And what's the blessing? Look again at verse 5. Our strength is in you. Verse 7 repeats that. What happens to those who find this internal highway to God? They're going then from strength to strength, and each one then appears before God in Zion. And he says in verse 8, O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer and give ear, O God of Jacob. Derek Kidner, thinking about this whole concept of us walking through dry and desolate places and letting God be the one who brings refreshment, says it kind of bluntly, but in a way that I found helpful. God alone may choose to bring rain, which comes through nobody's enterprise, and he alone brings entire areas to life. For he has more than one way of dealing with our dryness. What he's referencing there is the solution that's talked about in verse 6. As they go through a dry valley, a parched valley, they make it a place of springs, and the early rain also covers it with pools. You know what the difference between those two? Springs come up and rains come down. What Derek Kidner's pointing out is that so often it's so easy for us in a time when we are feeling a need. And that need is clearly something that we recognize can't be met by anybody else. This has got to be something where God comes through. It can be so easy for us in some situations to remember how God worked in the past, look our eye, lift our eyes up to the heavens and say, God, you brought rain before, bring rain again. And we're wondering, God, why won't you bring the rain? Why won't you bring something right now? But the first thing is, well, God actually makes this a place of springs. Meaning, Sometimes he's bringing water up in a way that we just don't remember. We haven't thought about. We haven't sort of attributed to the way that God worked because the last way he, time he worked, he rained down on us. Or you can just flip it around. The last time God worked, he led you to a spring and there was an oasis in the midst of that desert. There was something you didn't anticipate and it was refreshing for you. And you've got your eyes on the ground looking, Lord, when are you going to bring me to this next spring? When are you going to bring refreshment the way you did in the past? And Kidner reminds us, he has more than one way of dealing with our dryness. From Psalm 23 again. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. But I wouldn't have written the rest of Psalm 23 exactly the way that he does. 
I would say when I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, what I want are those things that bring life. What I would want are, I will fear no evil for you are with me for the food you bring. That comforts me. Or the sound of your voice. That comforts me. But what David writes in Psalm 23 is that it's God's rod and staff. His means of protection over the enemies that would be bringing death in that valley. That's what ultimately protects David. Now, the rest of the psalm, which is a little bit of a teaser. Psalm 23 is one of the psalms we're going to look at this month. (coughs) Excuse me. But the reminder that comes for me in reading a psalm like 23 or in listening to what Kidner says about this is that God has a multitude of ways of bringing strength to our life when we feel weak and dry and weary. And if we forget that this isn't literal and it's a metaphor, we just go back to the blessing in verse 5 right out of the gate again. Blessed are those whose strength is in you in whose heart are the highways to Zion. So what do we do? Here's this offer. I'm in a season that I'm dry. I don't feel like God has refreshed me. He may not be working the way he has in the past. I remember what he's done. I'm not noticing it right now. What does the psalmist say to do in light of that blessing that's available? Ask. That's what he says in verse eight. Oh Lord, The God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Now we'll get to those two titles in just a second. Hold on to them. But what I want you to see is the action that the psalmist is recommending. If you feel dry, pray. If you feel dry, cry out. And don't just pray, but pray in a way that you are telling God to hear what you're saying. Do it the way a little kid is talking to a distracted parent, right? What does a little kid do when the mom or dad is in the phone or in the paper or at the computer or something like that? Mom, 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 mom. Hey, dad, dad, what are you going to do? Hey, dad. And sometimes takes your chin and makes you look at them because they're saying, hear My request. That is the way the psalmist is saying to pray. Are you dry? Don't just say something from the corner of the room and hope he's going to listen. You come like a little toddler grabbing God's chin, putting his eyes on you and saying, will you hear my prayer right now? Because I need what only you can bring. Will you bring me strength in the midst of this baka? Which... If you're looking for a biblical curse word, maybe a really good one for you to use. If you're struggling and you've hit your hand with a th- you hit your thumb with a hammer or something like that, who knows? Maybe baka is not a bad one. It just sounds wrong. It just sounds like something you don't want. It sounds like something that should be frustrating. And so if you're feeling this dry, parched, baka-like kind of existence, what do you do? You go, you grab God's chin, you say, would you look at me and would you listen? Because I got something I need you to hear right now. I need you. That's how you get home in the middle of the valley. And those who cry out like that are those who are blessed like this. 
and we find a strength and a joy in walking with God. The last blessing comes at the end and it references that title that we just heard because honestly, the title, the Lord or the God of hosts is an odd addition for me in the midst of this psalm. It's kind of like the rod and the staff in the Psalm 23. I I don't quite get it because God of hosts is a reference to God's capacity to command the angel armies of heaven. It's the sort of thing that Elisha's servant needed to see whenever the enemies were surrounding him. And Elisha's not afraid, but the servant's afraid, and he doesn't quite know what's going on. And Elisha says, well, maybe you just need your eyes open to see what I see. Because I see that the Lord, the God of hosts, controls armies that are often invisible in the midst of, of life's difficulty right now. So Lord, would you open his eyes and show him where I'm getting my confidence? That's the one that the sons of Korah are addressing. Talk to the God who controls the armies of heaven. Tell him you're looking to get home. And tell him on the road you're feeling dry. And if you need to, grab him by the chin and say, look at me and listen to me. And you'll be blessed if you dwell with him. And you'll be blessed if there are highways like that in your heart. And lastly, he says that when you get home, you won't be disappointed. Because there's honor in what it means to arrive at God's place of dwelling. And so he speaks to this commander and he enters into the place in which this commander resides and he calls him his shield. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor and no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. You know what you find when you arrive at the dwelling place of God? He has every resource in in heaven available to him. There is nothing he cannot command and control that you faced in 2022. And there is nothing coming down the pike this next year that is not under his available set of resources to command. That is why he is a, verse nine, shield. That is why it is better to dwell in his house than anywhere else. That is why he is a son and he gives favor and honor. This is not the only place where God being the one to provide light in the midst of darkness is seen as a protection. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. What's the result? So then whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Do you see that association together? God provides light and everything that the sun brings. And God is the one whom I trust. That's the language of 27. It's the language of verse 11 here as well. The Lord God is a son who bestows favor and honor. And the Lord, verse 9 and verse 11, is a shield. Remember the first time that picture came up? In the Bible, 
Remember we meet Abraham? God's rescued him from some, like, probably like pig farming life, right? Calls him away from his dwelling place with his dad. On the way, dad dies. Probably on the way, a brother dies. He inherits Lot as his, like, heir, and he has no heir. So the whole idea of going with the whole family and setting up the new business over in this land God's going to show them is dying out rapidly on the way. He's left behind everything that's familiar. Most of the people he looked to, either as equals or as coverings, have died on the way. The only one that's left is Lot. And by the time he and Lot kind of set up shop, it's becoming obvious they can't work together. Lot is bickering with his people. His people are bickering with Lot's people. And so he meets and he powwows with Lot and says, man, this is not working out. You need your turf and I need my turf. So here's the thing. Look wherever you want and let's pick the land. Now, if Lot's a good guy and he sees that over here is really good area and over here is not so great an area, and if he's a fair guy, he's going to say, let's divide it this way. That way you get some good and bad and I get some good and bad. Lot's not that kind of guy. Lot looks and sees all the good and says, I will take all of this. And you get all of this. The well-watered valley, that's where I'm going to go. The rest of the hill country, that's where you get to go. Now, you got to be feeling, if you're Abraham at that point in life, this is getting to be a raw deal. God, the one who told you to leave everything that was prosperous with everyone who you knew has killed them off potentially on the way and then settled you into a land where you just made the worst business decision of your life. What does God say to him? I am your shield. First time the association is made in the Bible. It's not going to be the last time. What was going to protect you? Was it going to be your dad? Nope. What was going to protect you? Would it be your association with your brother? Nope. Would it be your ability to work with your your nephew? Nope. Would it be the favor that you find in this land? The good land that you get? Nope. Later on, will it be your son that'll come? God says, nope. God pointedly wants to make one thing abundantly clear to Abram. If you need a shield, you only need one one shield. You don't need a collection of shields. You don't need an armory of shields. You need a singular shield in this life who will protect you and bless you. And Abram, that's me. Psalm 115. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Oh, house of Aaron, Trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. He will remember us and he will bless us, says God. He will bless the people of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless you who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. What is God making the point of in Psalm 115 and right here? It is this. God is the one who shields his people. It's why we got through this last year. It's why we have confidence getting into this next year. It means this, that when you feel dry and parched, when you feel loveless and lonely, when you are worried about your finances, when you don't understand how things are going to go, Don't look to accumulate shields in this life. 
Don't try to take all your resources and shore them up. Don't turn to illicit places of pleasure. Don't try to find comfort in those things that you know won't ultimately comfort you. Go home to God. Find and burn a highway in your heart to God. And when you get there, you will find he was the one shield and place of protection that you needed from the very beginning. He commands every angel in his army. And as such, he functions as your shield. This is two things. The first, what it means is this. If you find your home in God, no matter what position he gives you, you will never find dishonor in that role. That is the oft-quoted verse 10. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere, which is really saying something. If you could work one job for a day, or you could work another job for a thousand days, and you got to keep all the money that you earned in either one of those jobs, which job would you be more likely to think would earn more money? Probably the one where you'd work a thousand days. And the sons of Korah say, no, just spend the one with God. You will accumulate more. You will prosper more. You will do better in that singular day with God than if you were to find in the tents of wickedness another dwelling place and you could earn everything you think you could get there. You will not find enough favor or honor there. You will not find that that is the place where you get everything that you want. Because God is the sun and a shield, verse 12, is the one who bestows favor and honor. And no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So David says, just let me guard the gates. Just let me hold open the doors. Because just being able to be associated with God is an honor that brings nobility into my life and I need nothing else. That's the first thing. The second thing is the ultimate blessing that he lists in verse 12. O Lord, blessed is the one who trusts you. Those are the three blessings of the psalm. And you will hear a million competing voices to that this next year. 365 days of this next year, you will hear that there are other shields more potent, other homes more comforting, other tents that will provide more prosperity and favor. And those will all be lies. This is the only truth. If you want honor, then beat a path back to God. If it means you need to, over this next year, change what you listen to, then change what you listen to. If it means you need to change what you watch or who you hang out with, then make the change. You need to find and ask a good question. What highways are already running through my heart and how am I following those to elicit and disappointing ends? Find new ways to run to God. Find new songs to sing to God. 
find new paths of what you would read and what you would delight in. Because I can promise you this, if you do that over this next year, if you do that over this next month, this next week, or just today, that when you arrive home with God, you will not be disappointed. Oh, church, trust in the Lord. He's your help and your shield. Let's pray. Father, we want to cry out with the psalmist that we belong to you, we are at home in you. We are honored by you. And yet, Lord, our hearts cry out for other things and we're grateful for your forgiveness for the times that we followed those paths. What we pray, Lord, is that you would strengthen us by increasing our desire to be home with you, carving new paths so that we get to you, looking to you, Lord, for refreshment and joy as we walk. And Lord, let us see and experience freshly the honor of what it means to belong to you and be protected by you. Father, for all of us here and at home, I don't entirely know what this would look like. But I pray as we evaluate this last year and as we look ahead to this next, that you would search us, that you would know us, that you'd see where we've been anxious and you'd help us to trust you for everything ahead. And we ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.